Lord, thank you. This passage we're going to look at today, I ask God that you will just do a work from your spirit. Help us to see a reality that perhaps we've not wanted to see, we've been resisting to see. Maybe it's something we've known about, but we've neglected. Maybe it's something that's brand new to us. But Lord, I just ask that you will speak through your spirit this morning as we engage in your word. Lord, I want you to change my heart. I want you to change the hearts of those who hear your word, whether in this room, whether following online, or whether having nothing to do with us or any, anything else in this world. Lord, I know for a fact that you desire to draw all people to yourself. We read that in your word. So will you do that this morning with us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. It's been a, it's been a busy morning, and so I'm going to flip to my first slide. And I'm a little apprehensive because I don't remember what my first slide is. I think I know. And so if it is, then we'll be right on track. If it's not, then I'll have to, I'll have to manage it here. Yes. So remember, remember back in the, I think it was the early 90s for me, that's when I remember it first, perhaps you experienced it as well, but I remember riding in the vehicle with my dad, he was driving, and he saw this bumper sticker, and it said, he who dies with the most toys wins, and he was like, oh, I want to win, is really what he said. You know, the, the idea, the premise behind the bumper sticker, which was pretty popular in that time, it probably came out in the late 80s, I don't exactly know for sure, but it was this concept, if I can collect as much stuff as I can and build up this wealth and accumulate all these toys, whether it's new cars and boats and helicopters and airplanes and motorcycles and, and all these wonderful things, he who dies with the most toys, look at me, I win. And yet, what we find, especially as we become followers of Christ, is like, wait, maybe that's not quite mattering. And, and then when we found this in the early 90s, they kind of countered it. This was no fear. It was a brand of, of shirts at the time. They were really hip. If you had one of these, you were somebody. Okay, which is ironic because of the whole nature of what this message is saying. It was still about, hey, wear my shirt because then you'd be valuable. Okay, But it said, he who dies with the most toys, and then there's little writing underneath it, still dies. And what's fascinating is it encapsulated this reality that no matter how much wealth I collect in this earthly life, the, the end is still the same. He who dies with the most toys still dies. And this is not to condemn anyone. It's like, oh, I have a lot of things. That's, you're missing the point. The point of it is, what is it that your eyes are focused on? We really dealt with that last week. If you remember, we were talking about the weight of, of glory. We had the balance here. And in the midst of that balance, we talked about the things in our life that weigh us down. And they're good things as well as troubles. Remember, we dropped in the rocks into that little cup. And we dropped in the M&Ms into that little cup, symbolizing this fact, okay, I have kids, that's a good thing. But they come with a weight. They come with a burden. There's a burden of care. And then you have those troubles. It's like, well, how am, I gonna, how am I gonna rationalize and deal with this? And life gets to be so heavy. And it's very easy to focus on the heaviness of life. And then, though, what we were challenged with Paul last week, talking about this weight of glory, where we take all that God is and his full character and all of his blessings and it's poured into the one container and comparative, we drop that on the other side of the scale and it was incomparable. Whether all of the good things that you have in this life 
are incomparable to the good things of God. All of the troubles you have in this life are still incomparable to all of the good things of God. And that was really the message that we looked at last week. And so this week we're going to continue into this idea. The whole purpose, what what began and is driving this series, had to do with this concept as I was wrestling with what's going on in our society and the darkness and how do you engage with a world that seems to be in such turmoil? How do you engage with a world where you got all of this struggle and trouble? What do you do as a follower of Christ? Do you stand up against it? The answer is somewhat yes. But the bottom line, what we see from Paul is, don't lose heart. We'll see that verse come out here again today. But C.S. Lewis counters both of those, and he has this quote, and this is what he says, is, he who has God and everything has no more than he who has God only. You, you catch that? So in other words, with those two, two slogans, one of the bumper stickers and stuff, you collect all of this stuff and you have way more wealth than anybody and you have God, look at how much better you are. And as what C.S. Lewis is saying, you have no more than the same person or a different person who's got nothing but God. In other words, that weight of glory, that's where it's all encapsulated. That's the whole kettle of fish right there. And so no matter what I'm dealing with here is irrelevant because this is what we're really looking at and getting your eyes onto that aspect. It's really what C.S. Lewis was pointing at we were trying to illustrate last week. So the main theme, we're running through this. We haven't even talked about this verse really, but it's what rides us. It's what drives this whole idea because as we engage in this culture, we see Paul point out this in Romans chapter 12. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, we have to have a different perspective when we face this world. If I hold to the same perspective... As our culture does, as I engage in this world, I will find myself in a big pit of despair because that's really the underlying message and theme and feel that you get from our culture even now. There's despair. When you have political avenues kind of rising up against each other, it's coming out of a place of worry and despair. And God's got something way better for us. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. And then we touched on John 16, 33, and this just reemphasizes the fact that, hey, this is his life, and it's hard, and it's not going to get any easier. Jesus told us that from the beginning. I have told you these things, that you that in me you may have peace. I love that. In the midst of the troubles that we face, guess what? You can have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so we step into today... 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. And for the, this series, we're probably going to get into verse, chapter 6, verses 1 or 2, and then we're going to look at that Romans 12 after that and take us up to about Advent. But in 2 Corinthians 5, this is how he starts. So following up with all that weight of glory that we talked about last week, this is how he begins. And he says, For we know that if the earthly tent that we live in is destroyed... We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And that's huge. You know, when you, when you look at, we keep our eyes on this life, you know, we find the troubles, we find the work that needs to be done on our houses, our cars break down, and all of this aspect. And yet there's this promise of what's to come. 
We're promised something better. When I keep my eyes on, on that which is here now, it seems okay, but this is better. And is it better just because I have all this stuff in heaven? I don't think so. The, one of the questions, put it this way. If you could go to heaven, I asked this before, the pulpit, I remember asking it. It wasn't my thought. I didn't come up with this question, but I've heard it before. If you could go to heaven and enjoy all of the wealth and the contentment, everything that heaven has to offer, all the water that Elodie wants, all of the food that you want, pizza every night if you want to eat pizza, okay? All that you can imagine being good with heaven, if you could have all of it, but Jesus wasn't there, would you still want to go? And for some of us, it's like, yeah. But that should humble us into this reality of what is my reaction? It's like, you know, I, I've enjoyed going to Twins games in the past. Now that I'm older, I don't like spending money, period. So I don't go to any sporting events anymore because they're just too, too expensive, okay? The game, they treat, they cheat you. Yo, you can get $5 tickets. Yeah, parking's 108 okay? <laughs> but I, I would enjoy it. I, I remember one time I went to a Twins game alone. Someone gifted me a ticket, and so I went. It was boring, you know what I mean? And I think the twins probably even won. But there's an aspect. So you're, you go and you get to experience what it is that you wanted to experience. But what was missing? The relationship. And that's what I'm so convinced what we see in these verses as we look at what Paul's going to write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We can look at the, the picture of what Paul's saying as, as the stuff. If you can get to heaven, have all this stuff. But if Jesus isn't there, do you even care? It's like going to a Twins game all by yourself. Could you imagine being in a Twins game and you don't even have the other 30,000 fans there? You're sitting there alone watching these baseball players play. Would you care? It would feel empty, wouldn't it? Literally and figuratively. That's the picture. That's the point. Consider this. Maybe this changes your mind. I don't know whether to say this or not, but I'm going to say it. You go to heaven. And Donald Trump is there. Do you still want to go? <laughs> Biden is there. Do you still want to go? Hillary is there. Do you still want to go? Or is it like, that sets me off, and now I, I don't want to have, I don't want to be even around. Do you see the point? We focus so much. That, that's just this image. We have our minds so focused on the things around us that it affects what it is that I anticipate heaven to be and to offer. But we have this verse, and this is where Paul, he switches things, and this is really sweet. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Do you like to go camping? Do we have campers? Do you? Who's a camper? Yeah, some of you. I know some of you are big-time campers. And those of you who are not here this morning, it's because you're camping. Okay? <laughs> that's, that's the way it is. It's Minnesota. We, we know our camping, right? So for years, I love camping. I still do. But I'll tell you this. I'm not tent camping anymore. I don't ever intend to tent camp ever again. But when I was a kid, I remember the first camping trip that we ever made. It was up to the state forest because it's cheaper up there, right? At that time, you may not even have had to have paid for your, your camping spot. You just had to get there first. And so you, you'd arrive, and we were tent camping, and we had a small tent. It was just my older brother, myself, and my, my parents. I don't know where my little brother was, if he was even on the way. It's irrelevant. He's irrelevant. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> my poor family. But it's true. Um, 
But we had this small four-person dome tent. I remember when we first got the tent, we set it up in the living room. You know, so this is so, so, so cool. And then when you go to set up the tent outside, somewhere between the living room and outside, you've lost a part. And it's usually a pole or something critical. And so you have to kind of, you know, fashion together some form of a willow branch or something to make the tent at least stand, right? But it's inevitable. Whenever I've gone tent camping, what happens? It rains. They call it a rain fly. Why do they call it a rain fly? Because it doesn't shield any rain. Somehow water gets into the tent. You know what I'm talking about. If you're a tent camper, how did this happen? I put it up onto a hill, and yet your sleeping bag is soaked. I don't know. But it's a reality time and time and time again. I remember one time we were at my parents. They had a cabin. They do now. But they didn't have enough room for everyone. And so I was in the tent because (laughs) put Ryan in the tent. But it's okay. I had an air mattress, right? So we put in the air mattress. We inflated those. This will be okay. I don't mind cold, you know, and so I can sleep outside and just be fine. Well, of course, the air mattress leaks, right? And so I was on the air mattress, and not everyone was in the tent. It was just me and Carissa and one of the other kids. And Carissa's on the other side of the air mattress. Well, I'm heavier than she is, and so as the air mattress leaked, I'm on the ground, and she's way up here. <laughs> it's just like, this is a joke. What did I want? It's like, you know, I don't want to stay another night. I just want to go home. And you find yourself that as you're laying on the ground, this isn't where I want to be. I think that's the picture that Paul's giving us here. There's aspects of this that we like. There's good things in this world. Life is good. You got the M&Ms you're dropping in the, in the jar. But this isn't really where I want to stay. Because as I get older, it's harder and harder to get off of that hard ground because my body will start to ache and I start to groan. So we're gonna, I have some passages. We're going to look at this idea of this tent. Um, interestingly, we look at this idea of this tent. You know, so he's talking, just, just to clarify, when we look at this earthly tent, he's not talking about where you live. He's talking about the body. All right? And we touched on this last week. The point of it was, is therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly your tent is wasting away, this, this container... This pot of clay is wasting away, it's chipping, it's breaking. We've been dealing with that for weeks now. Yet inwardly, we're being renewed each day. So your tent is falling apart. You know what I'm talking about? Right. Okay. Young kids are saying, no, you're not. I'm, I'm, I feel good. Yeah, well, you wait. But we know that this tent that we live in, if it's destroyed, we have a building that, that's coming. But this takes us back when we look at this idea of the tent. So if you're not familiar, Old Testament, Israel. They were living in Egypt for a long time. They probably had semi-permanent structures, at least even with Egypt. I don't know what they would look like, all right? But they had some form of, of permanent structures because we know that when the angel of death came in the 10th plague, he said they were supposed to spread over their doorposts the blood of the lamb. And so we know that at least somewhere they had something that was semi-permanent. I'm not saying permanent because this is still different here, but somewhat semi-permanent. And then Moses comes in, the 10 plagues, and he leads the people out of Egypt. And so now they're out in the wilderness... Their, their shelters were left behind, and as they're out there in the wilderness, God gives them these instructions. We find this in Exodus, that they are supposed to build, and you see a number of aspects here. you got the tents all around, look at the, the landscape, and then you have what's called the tabernacle. That's a temporary dwelling, so all of them are living in tents. Even God's dwelling, where the ark is, that is nothing but a tent. The temporary nature of it. We see it recorded in 1 Chronicles. David, the King David, wanted to build a permanent dwelling 
for God. He wanted to build a permanent dwelling for this Ark of the Covenant. Because God, even at this point, we'll see this in Acts in just a moment, even at this point, God was in a sense still dwelling, earthly dwelling here, in a tent. So after David was settled in his palace, so here's David, they've come in. Okay, David's not even the first king. It was, it was uh, Saul before that. And here you have David now as the second king of Israel. They've had, gone through all the judges. They've been in the promised land for a long time at this point. And in this moment, he realizes, I have a palace of my own. I have my own permanent dwelling. But yet God is sleeping in a tent. And so David has this, this moment. He says, he says to the, uh, Nathan the prophet, he says, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go tell... So David wanted to go build the temple. That's really what happened. Nathan, the prophet, God speaks to Nathan, and says, Go tell David this. Go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. This is interesting. We'll find out later that it's going to be Solomon. But what's fascinating about it is, look at these next few verses of what God is and what he does in his character. It says, And I, this is God speaking now, will provide a place for my people Israel... I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. In other words, I've got something secure for them. I have a place for them. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. Even in the midst of that, God has a place for them. He wanted to provide for them this home. We see Solomon. This is what it eventually looked like. This is the the solid building, the, the temple of Solomon, at least the replica of it. You notice the difference between what the tabernacle was. It was designed to be broken down and carried with them. And now God has this permanent dwelling in which the Ark of the Covenant could rest. Remember the story of Stephen. Stephen speaks to this. This is what Stephen says. He gives a whole recap of it. We don't have time for all that. But in Acts 7, verse 44, Stephen is saying this. He says, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. Okay, They had this tent and they would carry it with them. It had been made as God had directed Moses according to the pattern that he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua, they brought it with them, and they took it into the land of Canaan. All right? The nations drove the, were driven out before him. It remained in that land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for God, the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses. Look at this. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. Sometimes we get so focused on what it is my hands can do. I get so focused on how, what, I, what it is that I can control. If I can control my money, if I can control my investments, if I can make sure I have a secure retirement, then maybe I'm going to be okay in the long run. And God's basically saying is, your eyes are fixed on that which is temporary like a tent. Get your eyes off of something that is unseen, that is permanent. And even the Temple of Solomon wasn't permanent because it was destroyed, but it gives us, this, gives us this picture. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? What, in other words, for mankind, what can you do to give me a permanent place? And I'm the one that's going to give a permanent place to you. Has not my hand made all of these things? When the members of the Sanhedrin heard what Stephen was saying... They were furious and they gnashed their teeth, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and sees, look at what he sees. He starts to see the unseen. And that's what Paul's point is. Saw the glory of God standing, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He got a picture of that permanent dwelling that was not only there for God and for Christ, but what was waiting for there for him. And he saw it moments later when he was killed by stoning. Okay, so we see this. Here we have, for we know that this earthly tent that we live in will be destroyed. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, you've been sleeping on the ground inside your tent. It's time to wake up. What's the first sound out of your mouth? Oh, why? Why do I keep doing this? Likewise, as we continue to live with our eyes focused on the here and now, What's our response? I can't wait to get out of here and get home. That's the picture. Meanwhile, we groan. Even as a believer, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are just, we're going to get a lot of, I think Paul does what I call intentional redundancy. And we're going to see a lot of the same phrase he's going to use over and over again in the next Uh, five verses. I think what he's really getting at is just understand everything that we try to focus on, it's meaningless. Get our eyes on onto what is really important. He says, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. That goes without saying. Interestingly, in this context, the Greeks actually looked at the body as a hindrance. And if they could shed the body, they would be like naked, okay, and like, woohoo, that's what we're after. All right, that's a little bit weird. But for the Jews, that would have been very offensive. The idea of, of the nakedness in that way is it, it's very shameful and offensive. And so you have this kind of this contrast going on between the people that are receiving this message. But he says, when we're clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, okay, we groan and we're burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed. I don't want, here I am, I'm, I'm burdened. I don't like what I feel, but I don't want to shed the body because then I'm going to be, di- I'm going to be dead, Right? We were talking about that this, this morning in our prayer time. Just the irony of, you know, you know how many steps you have. We, we joked about it. One, one of us said, uh, we're limited on how many steps you have. That's why I don't exercise, okay? Because you take more steps, you're just escalating your life. And I just said, well, that's why I go running, okay? So hurry up and get to the end, you know? Let's hit the end sooner so I finish and I get rid of this body, get unclothed with this and clothed with something else. It was just lighthearted, but that's this kind of this picture. We spend so much of our time trying to save and preserve that which is temporary, and there's something so much better waiting for us. So while we are in this tent, we groan and we're burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I don't know how much focus you spend on every day. I'm not saying we don't spend time with that which God has given us. We have a responsibility. But when our eyes are so fixed... Well, I gotta care for this, I gotta care for this, I gotta care for this, and I'm ignorant to the promises of God. I think the message is, whoa, careful. This is not the end. You know, this life here, when we pass from here to eternity, that's just the first step. That's the beginning. Sometimes we think, we talked about this this morning too with our our prayer time, sometimes we think that, oh man, if I lose this, then I gotta go sit on a cloud playing a harp in some kind of a semi-transparent spirit form. That's not it. I believe, and we see this evidence in Paul's writing, that when this happens, 
when we die, when this tent is destroyed, kaput, when this is gone, I believe what we see here, evidence, is we're going to go from this one point right here, from this death into life. Isn't that interesting? Because we think that's like, oh, we're going from death and now I'm dead. We're going from death to life. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to go from what you know now as life into what is really life. I believe it is physical. I believe you'll come face to face with Christ. I believe it's going to be better than anything you could ever imagine. And yet we was like, yeah, but what about this? We're constantly drawn back to get our eyes on that which is here now. The message is different. We can know this because you have the Holy Spirit put in you. This is your deposit. We covered this a number of weeks ago. You have the Spirit as a deposit. It's like when we bought our first house, we were one of the fortunate ones that got to go zero down on it. And, and fortunately, we're not one of the ones why, you know, Freddie Mae and Fannie Mac kind of went, okay? But you have to put a down payment on your house. And what does that ensure? That ensures the bank's going to get their, their money, right? Because either... If you're going to go, de- you know, default on it, they're going to take the money and they're going to take the house and they're going to be just fine. But likewise, when there's nothing to, there's, there's no collateral, it's like, well, what, what do we get? The point of it is the Spirit has been placed in you as a deposit. In other words, Jesus is coming back and he wants the Spirit to be reunited with him. You are guaranteed when you have a relationship with him. Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we are, get this, as long as we are at home in the tent, I'm in my tent, I am not with the Lord. I'm talking about permanent dwelling. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So in other words, when I'm in the tent, you guys get me. When I'm out of the tent, I'm with him. And I mean very physically. That's, that's the point. I'm, yes, we have him now here in the Spirit, but we're with him very physically at that point. Psalm 118 says, I mean, this is just help us with the perspective. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What's the worst? This is really the message. What's the worst that man can do to me? They can kill you. And what did we just read? If I'm dead, tent is gone, I'm with the Lord. That should provide us hope. You might be stressed about your life, taxes, troubles, work. I get that. But this is a promise that goes much deeper than any trouble you're facing. You may not believe me. I understand that. But my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will reveal that to you. It's like, man, you don't understand the troubles that I have. I know. Yeah, I probably don't. But that doesn't change this message that the Lord is giving to us through Paul. Hey, the tent. Are you tired of living in a tent? I got something better for you. And it also echoes what we looked at last week, Philippians 1, verse 21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul understood it and he understood it well. Verses 9 and 10. So we make it our goal because of this promise that he has laid out for me. We make it our goal. Am I going to please myself in this life and do all that I want to live? Collect as many toys as I can so that when I die I win? Or am I going to realize, man, this isn't out of some kind of a command or obligation, but you've been so good to me. You've provided for me. You have this promise. I mean, who, which one of us? You're living in your tent. 
You're cooking over a fire. It's raining and you're trying to start a fire. This is your only option. And someone calls you on your cell phone. I don't know why you have a cell phone, but you got reception. They call you on your cell phone and say, Hey, why don't you come on over? I built a house for you. It's just, you can live there. Well, how much is that going to cost? I can't afford that. I can't afford the mortgage payment. It's covered. Yeah, but I, I really need a place for the dogs to run and such. I'm going to need some acreage. i got 40 acres. Yeah, but what about some cows? I'll give you 100. Okay, the idea of it is anything you can imagine. Are you going to live in the tent? Or are you going to pack up the tent and say, okay, I'm on my way over? Do you, you see the contrast? I get it because I oftentimes go back and default to, it's like, yeah, but what about this? The point of it is that doesn't matter. There is something better. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due Him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And I would just emphasize the greatest thing you can do while in your body is to choose to follow Jesus Christ. That's the greatest thing you can do. It's not going to necessarily transform your physical life, but it's going to transform your thinking where you can get your eyes off of yourself and onto that which you cannot yet see. Pam, worship team, would you come up? I, this is a message that kind of continues to echo as we've, as we've worked through these passages. But my heart really is, has boiled it down to, do you believe that it's worth it? Do you believe that following Christ is worth it? Do you believe that there is, in fact, something better for a believer than what you experience here now? Because this is, i got to be honest, I'm not trying to be, the, you know, confrontational, but if this is my best life now, that's pretty bad. That's all I'm saying. There's got to be something better. And I'm convinced that what Paul says is the truth, and there is something better. And that's what I want to see and cling to.